Welcome to another episode of Anecdotal Evidence, the podcast sponsored by the American Institute of Dental Public Health. I'm your host, Annalise Cothran, and today we're talking about rural health. Rural Americans reside in 80% of the total U.S. land area, but only comprise 20% of the U.S. population. Americans living in rural areas often face significant health inequities driven by barriers to accessing care, including reduced health workforce, geographic distance to care centers, lack of infrastructure, and cultural factors inhibiting treatment. What we also learned today is that these communities often support some of the most innovative responses to care delivery in the U.S., derived from the need to be resourceful and self-sufficient. Joining me today is Dr. Marsha Brand, who completed more than 20 years at the Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA, where she was the Deputy Administrator and led the Office of Rural Health Policy. She is now a Senior Advisor with the DentaQuest Partnership for Oral Health Advancement on Policy and Rural Health. Also joining me today is Mr. Alan Morgan, who has been the CEO of the National Rural Health Association for almost 20 years. Recognized as among the top 100 most influential people in healthcare by Modern Healthcare Magazine, he has more than 27 years experience in health policy development at the state and federal level. I'm excited for you to hear Marsha and Alan's thoughts on rural health in America. So I'm here today with Dr. Marsha Brand and Mr. Alan Morgan. And they are here to educate us on rural health. Thank you so much for joining me today on Anecdotal Evidence. Oh, thank you for allowing us to be here. Absolutely. Great. Our conversation. Yeah. Uh, so I just saw you guys. We just saw each other. Um, I saw you from a distance. You probably didn't realize I was sitting in the audience, but I just saw you at the National Rural Health Conference where you presented on rural health. And we started off that presentation with some controversy on how to pronounce rural. Uh, Alan and I have already established that we skipped the second R. So Marsha is now sort of on her own here. Alan and I have teamed up in our pronunciation of rural. Uh, but during that conference and that presentation, which was wonderful, by the way, we learned a lot about rural health, um, both uh, all, all health and then specifically coming from the perspective of oral health during that conference. So I'd like to start things off today by asking both of you a little bit about your personal experience with rural health. Uh, Marsha, I know that you have a rural background. You grew up in a rural area. So do you mind sharing your personal experience with rural health? Um, so not only do I have a background in rural health with two R's, but a background in oral health with one. Um, I grew up in West Virginia. Um, in the eastern panhandle of West Virginia, but my folks were from uh, further back in Appalachian Mountains, and um, both of my uh, grandparents were edentulous by the time, not, they didn't have any teeth by the time I was, came around as a kid. Um, and so there's a long history um, within Appalachia of folks who struggle to get access to oral health care, and that played out in my family. Um, when I was a senior in high school, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do for a living. Um, I had six sisters and a brother, so I had no interest in teaching or doing anything else with children. Um, nursing required staying up late at night, but there was this new, relatively new discipline called dental hygiene, 
And one of my sisters was at Western University and her roommate was studying to be a dental hygienist and I didn't know much about it, but it sounded different and kind of interesting. So I began my career as a dental hygienist some number of years back. Yeah, so, so you sort of fell into oral health um, from a personal perspective um, of kind of experiencing oral health disparity on your own and mm -hmm. having an interest to go and explore that more as a profession. That's right, exactly. And Alan, what about you? I know that you are the CEO of the National Rural Health Association. Um, what about your personal experience with rural health? Oh, sure. Well, I'm actually the fifth generation born and raised in Holton, Kansas, which is a small two-stoplight community in northeast uh, Kansas. Um, I've been with the National Rural Health Association for almost, almost 20 years now. Um, you don't have to have a rural background to work for the National Rural Health Association, but obviously it helps. It helps quite a bit to be able to understand that rural is not a small version of urban. It's a, it's a unique healthcare delivery environment. And so I rely on my background of growing up and my family who all still lives in, in a rural community and many of my friends as well too. Um, that's just helpful to rely on to make sure that I'm grounded in, in reality and, and, and the what how healthcare is actually delivered in that setting. Yeah, and I remember that you made that comment at the National Rural Health Conference, and that frankly really resonated with me. That rural health is not just a smaller version of what's going on in an urban area, but rural health is really its own healthcare delivery system that comes with some very unique barriers and presents with unique challenges, but also presents with a very unique um, opportunity for innovation. Oh, absolutely. Um, it, it's the place where those most in need of healthcare services have the fewest options available. And that really makes it different. Um, in an urban setting, um, you have a lot of practitioners and healthcare available. And you don't have that. And you don't have the transportation. So transportation becomes a barrier. There's economic factors. And then there's just the social fabric of a rural community. It's, it's, you really have to know the community and know the culture to be able to address the health needs. And there's, a, there's some pressure for innovation in rural communities. You know, this is not, this is historically has not worked. We need to try something new and something different. And people are more open to innovation, I think. If you're trying to change something in Philadelphia, Mississippi, versus Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, just getting people on board and getting them to understand the need to address this health challenge, it's gonna be much easier in the smaller community versus the large urban area. Right, and I think, you know, in rural areas, in my experience, um, having gone to school in rural Mississippi and my grandparents living in rural Mississippi and most of my family still living there, I know that each rural area also presents a very interesting um, culture. There are, there are these microcosms of culture that are very unique to that area and it impacts not being able to copy and paste from one rural area to another or from an urban area to another. And so as a rural health practitioner or someone living in a rural environment, how does our cultural competency, our cultural exposure, how does that affect how care is delivered in those areas? Marsha, why don't you share your thoughts? So I think Alan would agree, and we probably all have said this, we've seen one rural, you've seen one rural, uh, just in terms of the challenges and barriers that those communities have, and, and then also the resources and opportunities that they bring to addressing unmet 
healthcare needs. Um, one of the interesting challenges, I ran the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy, and we would often look for evidence-based solutions to addressing a problem in a rural community. And so we would try it out in sort of the Southeast, and it would be a solution to addressing perhaps a need to improve access to maternity care. And then we would try to apply it in another part of the country, and it wouldn't work for a couple of reasons. The resources were different, but also the fidelity to the model was really different, difficult to maintain because the folks in the community would say, but that's not how we do things. We do them this way. Um, and so that was a bit of a, a, a learning curve and a learning experience for me is that promising practices and evidence-based approaches don't necessarily apply across the country because there's so much variability within our rural and frontier communities. Mm -hmm. Alan, how, what would your response be, again, sort of being in this very national scope and knowing that the National Rural Health Association is sort of there to accommodate all of these types of diversity within the rural community? Yeah, I think it comes back to Marsha's exactly right. I mean, one community, you've seen one rural community, you've seen one rural community. But the commonality uh, among this is you have to be respective of the local culture, the local community, and you really have to work with that community when you're delivering care. And that's the reason why I think you see examples of community health aides being partners with the practitioners, um, that providing that linkage. Or when you have new uh, clinicians coming in the community, it's so very important to onboard them with the community and become make sure they're part of the community going ahead. Uh, I will say this, and you're right, uh, we're dealing at a national level, so we always look for those, what are the common features that are uh, prevalent in every rural community, and that's always a challenge for us. Right. And I think, too, one massive barrier to rural health is not just the obvious geographic issues, so just being really far from the places where you would get your health care. But there are all of these very unique challenges. Um, I know I, I reside in Texas, and so Texas has a lot of rural and frontier communities. And um, we were having a discussion the other day because there is a telemedicine bill in Texas. And currently in our legislation, in our current legislative session, there's a few bills that would look to expand uh, telemedicine here in Texas. And we see telemedicine used um, and promoted as a, a technique, as a resource to um, overcome those geographic um, barriers to accessing care. But in our rural and frontier communities, they don't have the infrastructure to support telemedicine. So telemedicine requires that there be some sort of broadband access where one provider is able to talk to another provider and collaborate on care. And so in terms of telemedicine, what are the pros and cons? What's currently working? What's not working? Um, Alan, can you speak to that? Yeah, let me start if I can. Um, uh, telehealth is a great tool, and, and that's the alpha and the omega for it. It, it simply can't replace having uh, uh, family practitioners there on the, on the ground, certainly not can't replace dental professionals on the ground, but it's a great tool to expand um, access out to communities. But you, you hit it right on, on the head on that. Um, it, it, you still have to have broadband access if you're doing video. And at a more basic level, you have to have cell phone access. And I think a lot of people, until they get out very far outside of a metropolitan area, they don't realize the large gaps we still have in basic 
cell phone coverage. Mm -hmm. Right. I actually experienced that sort of recently coming back from the National Oral Health Conference. Um, I was visiting family in Mississippi and I thought about um, that I needed Internet access to work and nobody in my family has wireless or broadband or internet. So I added it to my phone, and then when I got there, I just didn't have cell phone reception. <laughs> so those sorts of barriers, you know, living in an urban area now that I have for many years, I don't often think about those. So Marsha, how, you know, Alan mentioned the unique challenges that come specific to oral health and, and teledentistry. And what have you experienced um, in terms of overcoming that, effectively leveraging teledentistry, what opportunities are there within rural health? Well, one of the things that I think is promising is the recognition um, by the current administration and the previous administration about the challenges of uh, limited broadband and access to technology and what that means to rural communities, not only in the sense of connectivity for delivery of health services, but also for economic development. We need to be able to, you know, we need to be able to use those technologies to make the industries grow. That um, in in dentistry, um, I think certainly there are a number of promising practices for teledentistry. But the the one I think that most folks point to most immediately is the ability to use teledentistry to provide supervision for dental providers who are not necessarily the dentists, but are other providers who are in those communities. So for example, in Alaska, um, if you run the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy, you go to Alaska, I think I've been there like eight or 10 times. And um, early on in my tenure there, um, they began developing the dental health therapist, dental health aid, DHAT. Um, and the, the challenge was, you know, to provide some supervision. So where they could use teledentistry, you could place someone who's from that community, who knows the people in that community in the school or in a practice setting and provide supervision for that individual who could then provide services under the supervision of a practicing dentist within the scope of the state practice acts. And so those were some of the early applications for teledentistry. And you know, as we've gone forward, um, certainly that, that application in Minnesota, for example, for the uh, dental therapists, uh, we see that that's one way to get care out into the communities. You know, we certainly don't want to replace you know, people coming into care, but the extent to which we can get particularly preventive care out into those communities, we can uh, improve oral health outcomes. And Marcia, I, that is, if you don't mind, oh. I, let me let me take you right off of that. If you don't mind, I apologize for that. Sure. But Marcia, you and I talked about this uh, when we were together at the conference, and it has come up almost daily for me since then, the concept of telehealth being provider to provider. And I don't think we have good data on how widespread that is, but it is amazing. Um, I, I keep hearing, oh, no, we don't use telehealth. Well, we talk provider to provider, and I think a lot of times that they don't realize uh, what a great asset that is, what a great role that is, and how widespread that currently is of having that second opinion on, on cases. And when you're talking, as you said, the supervision issue of having a higher level uh, practitioner, um, they're providing um, background for the, 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 the boots on the ground. And also provider to patient, where it's, it's telehealth, uh, but it's not provider to provider, it's a provider to a patient who's in a remote setting. One of the things that um, has been an interesting development over the past number of years is um, group patient 
meeting. So everyone who's got the, who's dealing with diabetes or perhaps the OB folks you know, who are uh, getting ready to deliver a child come and have group sessions at their provider. So they counsel each other. How have I addressed this challenge or you know, what are you using that works for you? Uh, but that's really hard to do in remote communities, but you can use technology to create a patient-centered group that's dealing with a particular problem and oral health lends itself to that. You know, how do I get my kid to brush his or her teeth? Or how do I help them do this? And so using um, provider to patient and population technologies would be an interesting application for dentistry too. And I, I think, you know, issues that you have both pointed out within telehealth and teledentistry is it's really about leveraging your workforce to be able to expand um, access to care, leveraging your workforce to its highest scope. And so I think it brings me to my next topic, with, which is when there is an area with a critical shortage of workforce. And we see that a lot in rural health where maybe one end is there and the other end isn't in terms of being able to talk. I know that there are a lot of programs available to recruit providers into uh, rural areas to provide care. But I was wondering if, if um, Alan, maybe you could speak to the shortages that we are experiencing the workforce uh, in health workforce and um, ways that we could overcome that barrier that we're seeing too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's unfortunate that when you're trying to define what rural is, um, it really, it, the definition of it is workforce shortages, and we see that. And certainly in the area of oral health, I just, I, I firmly believe we're not going to be able to educate our way into having a dentist in every rural community. It just is not practical. So then you start talking about, and that's so much of our focus, how do you maintain quality care but provide that that connection. Um, and so you get the great ideas of integrating uh, oral health into primary care. You get the um, uh, ideas of dental health therapists. You get community health workers who are able to assess in the field and then refer to the clinician when they're needed. Um, how do we build that bridge? Uh, that, that is where I think a lot of the exciting work is happening because as Marcia indicated, if we can figure out the right way to do that in a rural setting where it's appropriate, people are getting the care they needed at the level they needed, then we can um, take that into urban areas, uh, some, some hard hit um, uh, areas of, 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 of urban areas, like I said, where we can use that as well. So, so interesting, Alan. One of the challenges that I think we face in oral health care delivery is that the model is different in the sense that an individual provider buys his or her practice. And when you're doing that in a rural community, if you've just graduated from dental school and you have a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of debt, right, and now you want to buy a practice, and the practice scale is not such that necessarily that you would be making a great deal of money sort of up front, um, what can we do to incentivize folks to either change the practice model or provide resources to support uh, the, the provider who wants to move into an underserved area. Um, the, the National Advisory Committee of rural, on Rural Health and Human Services, that's the advisory committee to the secretary of HHS, just finished a report on rural oral health. Um, and one of the things that they recommended that the secretary look into is perhaps some sort of program that would provide incentives for folks to move to rural communities and provide some support for 
uh, getting that practice up and going, which um, would be an, an interesting um, model. We'd, I don't know that we do that anywhere else in rural, um, specifically to private, private, private providers, excuse me, for, for private providers. We do, as a federal government, support the health, um, through the Health Resources and Services Administration, support the, the health centers and certainly a number of them serve and are located in rural communities. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, HRSA released a $76 million um, grant opportunity for health centers to e either expand their current infrastructure or create new opportunities for uh, providing oral health care services in underserved areas. It's really interesting, one of the purposes, and sorry, Alan, I'll, I'll stop in just a moment, but one of the purposes for which one might use those resources is to provide a, to move a non, um, a non-dental provider or move a dental provider into a, into a primary care setting. So you could use the grant money to hire a dental hygienist to work in the private practice setting and help folks to scale up to be able to, to do an oral health assessment, you know, and to provide some basic oral health services within the context of the primary care setting, which I thought was a really interesting and novel approach. Right. So it sounds like there's some federal support um, and that and that the government recognizes the infrastructure is needed and and that support is needed to to not only build the infrastructure, but also build the workforce appropriately in a responsive way. But I think it also brings me to um, to something that's gotten a, quite a bit of media coverage, at least in, in the health field, um, which is the closure of rural hospitals. So I want to read a little snippet from Modern Healthcare. Um, this was a an article that was um, released in February of this year that says more than a fifth of the nation's rural hospitals are near insolvency. 21% of rural hospitals are at a high risk of closing, according to Navigant's analysis of CMS data on 2,000 rural hospitals. That equates to 430 hospitals across 43 states that employ about 150,000 people and generate about $21.2 billion in total patient revenue a year. So I know that this has been receiving a lot of attention because it, it is um, very worrisome for people who live in rural areas and really rely on these critical access hospitals. Um, and so Alan, to me, when I read this, and again, I am not an expert in rural health and the both of you are, but when I read this and I, and I see that there's an employment of 150,000 people and there's revenue of 21.2 billion, I'm wondering how is this not an economically viable um, uh, industry? And I, I'm questioning why they're closing. So could you provide some insight yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's the makeup of rural. And I hear that all the time. I think from, and thank you for asking, if you live in an urban area, the first thing you think is, well, these just are poorly managed facilities. Why can't they survive? Healthcare is going gangbusters. But the problem is, is, is the, the customer, the patient makeup, um, a higher percentage of patients are seniors, that's Medicare, higher percentage are low income, Medicaid. And it's not uncommon for these rural hospitals to have 60% of their business being Medicare, Medicaid. Um, and, and I haven't even gotten to the, the veterans or the VA, Indian Health Service. So you really have 
for for a, a segment of the population are, are strongly supported by the government. And when you have this low income population primarily that aren't able to pay, um, you have the issues which they are right now, which sounds horrible. And believe it, what, what you just indicated, it's even worse than that. When we look at our data, um, close to a third of the nation's rural hospitals could possibly close in the next 10 years. That would dramatically change rural America. But it gives us such an opportunity. And that's, I hope, and this goes for oral health as well, too. Um, there are just such tremendous pressures. The current model is non-sustainable. And so you really see some amazing innovation happening out there for primary care, for hospital care, for oral care, um, of how we redesign the healthcare system. That's the cool stuff that I think people don't realize that where we're going to have our health system 20 years from now is really where rural is today. And Marsha, I know in terms of dentistry that dental providers often, le often leverage these critical access hospitals to provide care, um, you know, either traveling and sort of a mobile area and set up temporary shop in, in some of these um, rural hospitals. And so how do you feel like that may potentially impact um, dentistry in rural areas? So I, my first and most immediate concern is access to the emergency department. I mean, unfortunately, this is not where we should be seeking our oral health care. But in rural communities, that is often the place that where an individual with unmet need can go and see someone immediately. Um, and as we lose these hospitals, then that individual who has an active dental infection um, no longer has a place to go get a uh, script for an antibiotic, unfortunately, a script for painkillers. Hopefully, you know something a little less that we're moving away from using opioids for that kind of managing that kind of pain. But that's the front line for lots of these folks. And you know, if we lose these small emergency departments, then I don't know where they're going to get their care. Um, there was a study done not so long ago that suggested that up to two billion dollars worth of uncompensated care is delivered in emergency departments for oral health and it's the wrong place. You know, you're not going to be able to treat the underlying problem. So one of the things that I'm hopeful going forward is that we will look at strategies to, certainly as Alan's saying, preserve these small rural hospitals, but also create relationships between these small rural hospitals and other providers in the community so that this individual leaves the emergency department with something to treat the infection, something to help them manage the pain overnight and that sometime within the next 24 hours, that individual has an underlying problem addressed, you know, whether they need to be having extraction. Um, but, but we lose so much money in emergency departments, and it contributes to the problem that Alan's talking about. You know, it's a, it's a large source of uncompensated care. Um, mobile dental, which is another way of providing uh, care in underserved communities, is extraordinary what we can do now just in terms of loading things up onto a bus and taking it to a school or a nursing home um, and getting folks uh, screened and getting some first level of care. Um, the, the challenge with mobile dental is that it may not be available to me when I have my unmet need. Um, and so we need to think more broadly and how do we preserve the emergency department, how we use effectively mobile dental services for those populations that we're monitoring on an ongoing basis and how do we ensure that we have an adequate number of dental providers in these communities. And I think it touches on, you sort of bring me to my next point, 
which is how can I, as a public health advocate, as a dental professional, um, how can I advocate for rural health? How can, what can I do to help support um, the areas of need within rural health, because we're seeing that the disparities are growing. We're seeing that access to care has the potential to get a lot worse. So, Alan, in your opinion, you know, working again on that very national level with the National Rural Health Association, and I and I know your organization does a lot of advocacy around this issue. So, what would you recommend? How can we get involved and support rural health? Well, um, yeah, it has to begin at the local level. And that sounds like just a, a slogan, but literally, I, I every month I'll have another national association contact me and say, um, I need to talk to you about rural health because our members have told us we have to focus in on that. And from the perspective of oral health care, uh, there's a growing recognition that in a rural setting, um, uh, the, the oral health has to work with the home health, has to work with the hospital, with the long-term uh, care, with the meals on wheels there has to be this connection in a community setting. Um, I, and, and there needs to be leadership to bring everyone together on a health standpoint. Um, the successful communities have actually addressed health disparities and been able to push the concept of public health have done so through leaders. Bringing people together, buy donuts, get some coffee, and talk about how do we work together to make sure that we're improving the overall status of our community. And as Marsha has, has told me many times, um, healthcare begins with oral health. So much of your overall health status uh, begins in the mouth. So um, it's very, very important that they be at the table and, and, and serve in a leadership role within their community on that. Begin the discussion. So if I might follow on to Alan's comments, um, it's been my privilege to work um, in HHS and to work on Capitol Hill and so I've seen some of these problems from the perspective of the national view and one of the things I, I find historically most challenging is that the folks who make policy either through the agencies or are making policy through the, our Congress do not are not aware of the problem of unmet oral health need um, the, the analogous uh, argument that people often make is well it's like it's like behavioral health no it's not you know, everyone you know knows someone who has a substance use disorder or has had a postpartum depression or has a child who has a behavioral problem. And so when you go to talk to members of Congress and policymakers about the need for behavioral health parity, they understand it. But if you go and talk to them about unmet oral health need, it's not a problem that they see, you know, in their own families. Um, and so it's, it's, important to make this real for them that this is this happens in their communities um, in their districts in their states um, I think another thing that uh, is helpful too um, beyond the fact that if you have unmet or health needs you are um, it, you're at risk for other diseases uh, you struggle to eat properly um, certainly there's a certain amount of social, um, embarrassment that goes with not having a presentable appearance, but you're not employable either. And if you think about the number of folks who you know, maybe don't have a pleasing dental aesthetic and he or she's looking for a job, you might get the job interview at McDonald's, but they're not going to hire you at the front or the back of the house if you have a really poor dental aesthetic. So making folks at the national level 
aware of the number of folks in this country who have unmet oral health need, and then using the, the levers that we have, Medicaid, uh, Medicare. Medicare does not cover, covers very little oral health, um, I mean, oral health need, and I'm really hopeful that, that when that generation steps into <laughs> and gets their Medicare card and goes, wait a minute, I don't have any dental coverage, you know, that they will certainly engage the, um, the, the members of Congress about this issue. Yeah, and you know, I think too, we've we've spent a lot of time talking about disparity and we've spent a lot of time talking about the barriers because there are a lot of them. But I think hearkening back to what we talked about earlier, there's also a lot of innovation. There's there is a huge sense of community within rural health that you really don't find in other areas. And I think they've they've rural you know, members of, of rural communities have really had to learn how to do things differently and do things together. So I know we spent a lot of time talking about the barriers and the disparities, but I'd like to invite each of you to put you on the spot a little bit to maybe share a success story, a community that's done something really well, um, a rural community that has done something really well and done it successfully. Um, so maybe we can highlight some of some of that uh, that innovation that we see in rural communities. Um, Marsha, do you have a, a story that comes to mind about uh, a success story in a rural community? If not, I can head to Alan. <laughs> I did put you both on the spot. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, well, let, let me let me why don't you let me start? Then Marcia, Marcia, she she has the really good stories, but let me start with a couple of them. Um, New Mexico, a guy by the name of Charlie Alfaro, who runs a community health center in a small rural town, has integrated oral health into his community health center. And literally when the patient walks in the door, um, one wing is, is primary care, the other wing is oral health. And, and then up above, you've got mental health uh, services as well, too. One-stop shopping to be able to serve the community in one beautiful building, actually. And they serve a, 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 high, uh, a highly uh, uncompensated uh, community as well, too. But a, a, a great bringing together of, of key health care services. Now I look towards an uh, example number two is what we're seeing along the border in um, Texas and uh, New Mexico, um, where they're training community health workers That's as was front, front line guys. You took yours. <laughs> oh, is that yours? Well, I'm going to turn it right over to Marcia then, because we, uh, that's where I think we're really headed when it comes to um, expanding access to communities that have never had it before. Marsha, I'll turn it right to you. Well, I think what's interesting in rural communities, the extent to which we can expand the oral health workforce. And so if we can skill up community health workers to be um, able to do screening, provide preventive services, um, and engage their patients around oral health, we can create a we can create more oral health care providers by whatever name we're calling them. And what they've done in Texas that I'm particularly um, excited about is use a tool called Smiles for Life, which is a free online curriculum uh, to skill up community health workers to become oral health care providers too. And they've developed a, a unit within the Smiles for Life curriculum that is just for frontline providers. Um, and so it's a, uh, it's, it's sort of Discipline agnostic, it doesn't matter if you're a promotor or a community health worker, you know, or someone else who's a frontline worker, you can use this curriculum to skill your folks up to engage 
at um, a number of different community-based settings. So very excited and, and glad that um, Alan agrees that that's a good, a good way to go. Yeah, it really is. And I, I want to make sure I emphasize on this. And I think there's, there, and I understand there, there's a hesitance among many of, um, uh, uh, of the dentists of trying to, whenever you start talking about any provider type, um, especially when you start talking about lay people helping. But our work is really connecting lay people up with the dentist to make sure that they're uh, identifying, assessing, and the basic public health information and then connecting. Like you said, how, how do we collaborate and work together? How do we extend our limited workforce? When you view it from that way, I mean, it's just amazing the new ways you can redesign the healthcare system. And I think when we're talking about redesigning healthcare system, I'd like to throw another uh, question back at you, which again may may take a little bit of thought, but I'm willing to wait. Um, and and that's with global rural health. So I personally don't know a lot about it. My experience is my own, but I know that globally there are a lot of rural areas, and there's a lot of innovation around that. Um, and so, Alan, I know that the Na National Rural Health Association is is in the global sphere in terms of rural health. And how do we have that exchange between the US and other countries? How are we borrowing from what they're doing and vice versa? Have we been able to translate that success over internationally? Yeah, when you're talking about uh, the global health approach, you really are talking about public health. And as everyone knows, that's how our health system should be designed here. Um, globally, they, they put much more of a focus on keeping people well and out of inpatient facilities in the first place. And that the real lesson to be learned is I think a lot of people think, oh, U.S. can go to all these other countries and share all the great things we're doing. And, um, and unfortunately, most times it's, it's identifying great practices overseas and bringing them here. Um, I had the opportunity to spend a week in, in rural and remote Peru. And then meeting with the health ministry afterwards. And it was just shocking a lot of the barriers that we have when it comes to licensure and malpractice and um, all these other barriers we have in the U.S. They don't have. And a lot of these rural countries that, that people might not realize are, are in the process of leapfrogging us when it comes to rural and remote health care. Um, there's a lot to be learned. Marsha, I saw you get a little bit excited whenever I talked about um, global rural health. Is there anything you wanted to add to that discussion? It's just that I'm really excited this is happening. You know, I, I ran the Federal Office of Rural Health Policy in the early 2000s, and we weren't having this discussion then, but now we are. And there's so much to be learned by collaborating with the other countries. And certainly I'm really excited that, that Alan has had this experience and this opportunity. Well, I want to thank you both for being here with me today. Uh, I know that I have learned a lot and I'm so glad that we had this conversation and that again, we can confirm that the best way to say rule is missing that second R. So I'm glad we're now all on the same page there. Uh, but before yeah. we head off, I wanted to give both of you sort of some closing, uh, an opportunity to share some closing thoughts, some closing words on rural health, anything that maybe we didn't cover and you felt like should have been uh, should have been covered. So Marsha, why don't you, any, any last thoughts, any closing words or remarks that you'd like to leave us with? Well, I'm, you know, I started you know, my career interested in rural health and oral health and we're having a moment. There's so much interest in improving access to oral health care in rural communities and I'm very excited about the work that's being done at the national, state and community level. 
Um, I've always enjoyed the opportunity to partner with the National Royal Health Association. Is it 23,000, Alan, something like that now, um, of folks who share the same passion about um, supporting rural communities. The only other thing that I would add to our conversation today is that um, the Surgeon General of the United States has um, put into uh, place a process for writing a new Surgeon General's report on oral health. It's the first one in 20 years. And I'm really hopeful the folks that are engaged around rural oral health will make sure that they share their comments and learn the process to do that um, with the Surgeon General to ensure that the report addresses um, some of the challenges that we've talked about today in the report. Alan, what about you? Are there any closing thoughts or words that you can share with us? Yeah, I want to leave with probably the most important uh, thing that I can, and that is innovation begins in rural America. I mean, you really have to remember that. Um, if you go online and Google the words rural health, Google, Yahoo, Bing, type in the words rural health, our website is always usually the first or second that pops up. And we actually have a rural oral health toolkit right there on our front page. Just type programs and then you'll see the toolkit. And we list a compendium of best practices. If you want to figure out how can I improve oral health in my community, well, you have tons of examples right there. Um, it's where innovation happens. There's a lot of great examples out there. And now, like Marcia said, is the time to really take the initiative and, and improve rural oral health. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for, for being here with me today on Anecdotal Evidence. This has been a wonderful conversation. And um, I can't wait to share this with everybody. So thank you, guys. Thank you so, so much. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Anecdotal Evidence on Rural Health. Big thanks to Marsha Brand and Alan Morgan for contributing to this conversation. You can follow Marsha's work through the DentaQuest Partnership for Oral Health Advancement at www.dentaquestpartnership.org. If you search for Rural Health, you'll find their white paper on interprofessional collaboration to address oral health inequity. You'll find Alan's work at the National Rural Health Association on ruralhealthweb.org, where you can learn more about advocacy efforts, read reports on primary care, and explore rural health initiatives, like the Rural Oral Health Initiative. For any listeners interested in learning more about rural health, I would also point them to the Rural Health Info Hub, a comprehensive resource created by the Health Resources and Services Administration containing data, toolkits, and examples of innovative, evidence-based work in rural health. You can also find resources on rural health via the AIDPH Dental Public Health Virtual Resource Center on our newly designed website, www.aidph.org. That's a wrap for Anecdotal Evidence. I'm glad you tuned into our podcast and we hope you'll come back next week. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Put your feedback in the comments. I promise I'll read them. I'm your host, Annalise Cochran, and I'll see you next time.